Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. A department at UCSF paid more than a million dollars to access their files again after a ransomware attack froze servers in 2020. KQED refused to pay a $30,000 or so ransom on the advice of the FBI when it was attacked in 2017, but spent hundreds of thousands of dollars rebuilding and putting in new network protections. Ransomware attacks have hit hospitals, schools, corporations, local governments, and yes, even public radio stations. But there is hope in a ragtag team of codebreakers who work tirelessly to outwit the hackers. They're the ransomware hunting team, and we'll learn more about them. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. Michael Gillespie is a cancer survivor and cat lover who used to work for Nerds on Call in Illinois. Fabian Wosar is a high school dropout from Germany who became obsessed with computer viruses at age 11. Sarah White is a computer science prodigy who became a malware expert as a teenager. You probably haven't heard of them, but they're all members of the Ransomware Hunting Team, an invitation-only group of elite coders who crack ransomware attacks across the globe. And they're the subject of a new book by my guests, Renee Dudley, a technology reporter with ProPublica, and Daniel Golden, ProPublica senior editor and reporter. Renee Dudley, welcome to you. Thank you so much. Pleased to be here. Glad to have you. And Daniel, welcome to you as well. Thanks. I'm, I'm glad to be here also. So let me start with you, Renee. First of all, the ransomware hunting team it feels like the, the Justice League or something. Right. Um, but I think the easiest way for listeners to get a sense of what the ransomware hunters do is is actually to start with a story. Could you talk about what happened on November 23rd, 2020 in London to a small publicly funded school, the email it received, everything? Yeah, they were, uh, the, the man who, who handles IT for the school noticed he couldn't log on and he was hearing from teachers at the school they can't get on they can't get their files and it was important for them to get their files because they had photos uh, that that was evidence of the children's learning the the teachers would take pictures to show how they were progressing through the school year and it's a it was a poor school you know catering to low-income kids um, uh, and it was their the school was was really their refuge and so when this uh it man uh realized uh that that 
the you know nobody could access these files it was really concerning and eventually he realizes oh boy we've been hit by ransomware and since it's a poor school, they know they can't pay a ransom. Um, they can't afford much. And he 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 tries uh, everything that he can try to try to to get the ransomware uh, off of their computers and comes up short. And he starts to negotiate and realizes quickly this is this is more than what they're asking for is more than the school can afford. So desperately he's searching online finds a website called Bleeping Computer, which uh, for listeners who are unfamiliar is, is the site that's the world's greatest site dedicated to ransomware, um, uh, ransomware removal, ransomware um, understanding. It's a place where people who are interested in ransomware gather from researchers to law enforcement, to cybersecurity firms, and even um, uh, even the hackers themselves show up there sometimes. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, he, the IT guy realizes, uh, hey, maybe there's somebody here who can help me. Um, and as it turns out, there was, and his name was Michael Gillespie, and he's the foremost member of our ransomware hunting team. Hmm. And at the end of it, Michael Michael helps him. Uh, Michael helps him decrypt the school's files, and they didn't have to pay anything. And the school was saved. They 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 didn't have to pay anything. They recovered their files, and wow, this IT guy he was really happy about that. Well, just to back up a little bit, so this is what a ransomware attack is basically, right? When hackers freeze access to an organization's files, it's not like they corrupted those photos or whatever other sensitive material might be on there. They basically just made it impossible for people to access? That's exactly right. So what happens is um, usually ransomware comes through when somebody clicks on an email attachment that has um, malicious code on it, these phishing emails. Um, In some cases, hackers find a vulnerability um, in a network software, you know, the, the classic unpatched software. There's a variety of ways that ransomware can come in, but once it detonates, what happens is your files are encrypted and you're not able to open them. And you're not able to open them unless you either um, pay for a decryption key, pay the hackers, um, or you know, if if the ransomware hunting team has a solution for you, um, they've they've been able to decrypt more than 300 types of ransomware since they've been active and overall have saved millions of victims from paying billions of dollars to criminals. Wow. wow. Daniel Golden, Renee describes this as a, a small school with few resources. Is this a common type of target for ransomware attackers, hackers? Uh, schools are definitely a very uh, common target, uh, small or large. I mean, the the Los Angeles Unified School District was hit just uh, uh, a month or so ago, yep. and and uh, it, it's uh, many other kinds of uh, institutions as well, uh, hospitals, government agencies, businesses. But I mean, a lot of nonprofits and st- struggling places because they may not have the money to put uh, into the the cybersecurity that they need to get a little more protection. 
so that uh, they are very, uh, very frequent targets. Mm, so they're less likely to have updated network protections. Daniel, I know That's you right. spoke with the school's IT administrator, Matthew, for this book. And didn't Matthew try to make a deal with the hackers initially, try to talk them down to a lower price? He did. They, you know, they initially requested, uh, or they initially demanded, and say it's not as polite as a request, um, 10,000 euros. And then he, he, you know, bartered back and forth. He got them down to 1,000 euros. And then he uh, he actually sent them the 1,000 euros. That was the only thing the school paid. But they then came back and said, uh, that's not enough. We want the 10,000. And uh, he was furious. He'd been double-crossed. You know, hey, I paid you for the key. What are you talking about? And they refused to budge. They said 10,000 was our initial demand, and that's what we want. And that's when uh, he knew the school couldn't afford it. And he embarked on the search that Renee described that ultimately led him to uh, uh, Demon Slay 335, uh, the handle of Michael Gillespie, uh, who was there in, in Illinois uh, fielding so many of these requests from and pleas from victims you know, all day long. Yes. And Renee, Michael did this for free. He decrypted it for free, spending hours trying to undo this encryption code, I guess. And uh, can you just tell us a little bit more about him, what he's like? Yeah, I I met Michael. I came across Michael in in my early days of reporting on ransomware back in in 2018. Once I once I figured out that ransomware was a topic that would be interesting to pursue, I started asking around and everybody in the cybersecurity field that I talked to said you need to talk to Demon Slay 335 <laughs> Michael Gillespie. And he's very active on Twitter. He has a huge following, but he doesn't talk a lot publicly. And I tracked him down to his Nerds on Call IT repair store in the town of Normal, Illinois, and uh, called him up and we started talking. And eventually I got to know Michael better after I visited him at his house in rural Illinois. Um, you know, usually when somebody is the best in the world at what they do, they have all kinds of handlers and hangers on, people scheduling for them, but not Michael. He met me at the, you know, his front porch swing. He's sitting there cracking ransomware, doing all of this work on behalf of victims, totally for free. And he's living in a house that's run down, needs a lot of work in a working class neighborhood, surrounded by his no exaggeration, eight cats, two dogs, two rabbits, um, and his wife. And he's doing all of this work after hours uh, from his regular job at Nerds on Call, uh, just prolific in cracking ransomware. He's he, he and his global team spread across seven, seven countries, the ransomware hunting team, they, they dedicate their time to finding vulnerabilities in the code that will help victims unlock without having to pay hackers and they spread the word through michael's own site id ransomware and on the site i mentioned earlier bleeping computer and people can find their their work and they don't have to pay a penny for it hmm. i mean you've talked about how he has lived on the edge of poverty would frequently have his electricity and water turned off because he couldn't pay bills that he is able to get in this state of deep concentration for a long time, like hyper-focus. One of the things that's interesting, even with all of this and not accepting payment, he also doesn't share. He keeps quiet when he cracks code. 
Why is that important? Well, that that's um, that's very important because uh, their biggest concern is that the cyber criminals, the hackers, will realize that the hunting team has broken the code uh, and then identify the flaw themselves and fix it and make the code uh, unbreakable. Because the hunting team can really only crack a code if there's some kind of mistake or error that they find. Uh, if they don't find it, it's uh, they're helpless. And so they want to help victims while simultaneously keeping the hackers in the dark as long as possible about the mistake that they've uh, latched onto. Yeah, and that's different, right, Daniel, from, say, companies that are selling antivirus products or something like that. And, you know, it gives them currency and fame if they're able to say, hey, you know, we crack this. Uh, but then, as you say, it immediately alerts the hackers and they fix whatever bugs allowed people to decode it, right? Absolutely. That, that's what happened with the colonial uh, pipeline attack, which, of course, got huge attention and had huge consequences uh, when, uh, you know, the pipeline shut down, gas gas stations were shuttered across the southeastern U.S. Uh, I think almost half of the fuel uh, consumed in the U.S. You know, was uh, no longer available. And uh, five months before that, the hunting team had actually cracked the uh, uh, the code of the attackers who would later attack Colonial Pipeline. And if the hackers had not recognized this problem, Colonial would have been able to contact the hunting team, get the key, and not have to pay the ransom. Mm. But what ended up happening was a uh, you know a, a cybersecurity antivirus firm uh, also found the flaw, and they wanted to publicity and drew attention, and they made a big deal out of it. The hackers read the press release along with everybody else. They fixed the flaw, and when they attacked Colonial Pipeline, uh, their code couldn't be cracked. Wow. We're talking about the ransomware hunting team. Renee Dudley and Daniel Golden have a new book called The Ransomware Hunting Team, A Band of Misfits Improbable Crusade to Save the World from Cybercrime. You, our listeners, can join the conversation with your questions for our guests or stories about whether you've experienced a ransomware attack. 866-733-6786 is the number to call or post your thoughts on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Here's what we're talking about Monday. Siblings. No one can make you laugh or cry as hard as your brother or sister. We talk about what makes sibling bonds unique, joyful, 
sometimes infuriating. And we want to hear from you. What do you love most about or find hardest about your sibling relationship? You can email forum at kqed.org or tell us in a voicemail at 415-553-3300. And since Monday's Halloween, bonus if you want to post a pic of you and your sibling in costumes on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, we're at KQED Forum. Today, we're talking about a group of elite coders who are members of what's known as the ransomware hunting team. They crack complex ransomware attacks on schools, hospitals, governments, and they're the subject of a new book by my guest, Renee Dudley, technology reporter with ProPublica, and Daniel Golden, ProPublica senior editor and reporter. If you have questions about the ransomware hunting team and how it operates, or if you've experienced a ransomware attack, and want to tell us what happened, or if you work in cybersecurity or tech and, and have thoughts on solving or preventing ransomware attacks, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us at 866-733-6786, emailing forum at kqed.org, or on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at KQED Forum. So Daniel, I'd like to turn to another category of ransomware attacks that the book addresses, and this is attacks on hospitals. So you talked about why schools are targets. Why are hospitals frequent targets as well? Well, for a couple of reasons, and, and there's somewhat similar reasons, actually. One is that many of them are nonprofits and don't have huge budgets, and so there's cybersecurity and, and may not be that strong. The other is, is that uh, they it's very uh, painful and difficult for them to stop service because so many patients depend on them. And so if a, a ransomware attack can take them down and they can't, the code can't be cracked, they really have no little choice but to pay the ransom. It's yeah. not like they could say, oh, we're just going to shut down this hospital for a month while we uh, uh, try and figure out how to get operations going. I mean, that's a difficult thing to say. So it kind of gives the attackers the upper hand. And so they're there are an awful lot of attacks on hospitals and you know many of them have not paid the ransom but they've had to kind of struggle along on half service working from paper records uh they have to transfer kind of do a triage and transfer uh some patients who need immediate care uh surgery uh uh you know electronic uh uh diagnosis and so on that's no longer available have to send them to other hospitals sometimes many miles away uh, because they can no longer, they don't have the patient's record easily available. They don't have the diagnostic equipment available. And so they, they go along at basically half speed for quite a long time. So the stakes are really high because it involves patient care. They hold a lot of data too. I imagine that's a bargaining chip. I, I don't even know how to put that. That's not even the right word, given that this is a cyber crime. But, but Daniel, I do want to also ask you about an incident that might not have made headlines here in California, uh, but it was the attack on Spring Hill Medical Center in Alabama in July of 2019. What I understand is that the ransomware attack there resulted in a death or a death is being attributed to that attack. Can you tell us what happened? Yes, I believe that's the attack where... Um... Uh, there was a uh, a woman was was about to have a baby, and uh, they didn't because of the ransomware attack. They didn't have the diagnostic equipment available, and they were unaware of uh, you know problems associated with uh, the, the delivery. And the baby was born uh, in very bad shape, and uh, you know died soon afterwards. Yeah, they they couldn't get I guess because it was hacked the fetal's. 
the 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 fetus's heart rate and so on and didn't realize it was in distress. Um, the attack at that time, Renee, as I understand it, was with the um, the virus Ryuk, or I don't know if if if, the, if I'm saying that correctly, uh, but that was the ransomware behind the attack. Is that right? Ryuk, yes, and Ryuk, Ryuk okay, yeah, Ryuk rampaged um, for 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 longer than most ransomware groups, and they particularly. Uh, went after the healthcare sector uh, mm. for the reasons Dan outlined. It's so vulnerable, um, and and they they really can't afford to not pay the ransom in a lot of cases. And especially during the pandemic, when hospitals were just flooded with patients, they were particularly targeting the healthcare sector, just making matters so much worse. And like I mentioned, Ryuk had staying power um, much more than other other groups and, and went on for years. High profile targets, sensitive targets, huge ransoms. Ryuk was the ransomware that essentially pioneered this big game era of ransomware. Early on, you know, ransomware has been around for a decade. Early on, hackers would hit mostly home users, hit up uh, you know, grandmas, students for $100, $200, you know, uh, a couple of thousand dollars to get their family photos back or their, their college thesis. But over the years, it's really transformed into something much, much more. And in 2018, Ryuk started with this called big game era. They went after bigger targets that it could afford bigger ransoms, um, cor corporations that had deeper pockets, um, and also very sensitive targets, like you mentioned, the healthcare sector. Hmm. Well, we've got calls coming in. Let me go to Robert in Columbus, Ohio. Hi, Robert. Yes, thank you for having me. Uh, this is a question that's plagued me for a long time. Uh, I do not understand that we do have no means or methods of tracking down the hackers and where they're coming from in the consideration that they're using, uh, their access points is our uh, uh, methods that which we control. Yeah. And also, I just want to add in response to your story, I truly believe, and I do not believe in the death sentence, that for one time, hackers themselves should be penalized by the death penalty and anyone who supports them. Uh, life imprisonment because the amount of damage I don't think has ever been calculated in terms of human life Whoa. and misery. Well, um, well, let me ask Renee to respond to your question about why can't we track them? Why is it so hard to track them? The cyber yeah, criminals. Great, great question. Well, there's a there's a number of factors here. One is when they make a demand, it's in cryptocurrency, and so it's not the traditional, you know, follow the money type crime, um, it, it, although it can, you can follow the money in cryptocurrency and Bitcoin, but it's a lot harder. And they use money launderers and all kinds of ways to obfuscate where they're coming from and ha where their money is going. Another big issue here is that the hackers are in places that lack extradition um, agreements with the U.S. And so, uh, you know, th they're, they're in places like Russia or Iran, where they may even, um, uh, there's increasing evidence that they're, that they're, if not 
working at the behest of um, enemy governments. They're at least having the protection of enemy of, of, of these governments. Um, another factor here is that for years, even after ransomware started really gaining traction, the FBI, which is the the law enforcement agency that um, uh, you know ha has been the primary um, uh, uh, law enforcement agency in the U.S. to handle ransomware. For many years, the FBI has dismissed ransomware as an ankle biter crime. Um, hmm. At the early days, ransoms were low. They couldn't get the interest of um, the Justice Department to really go full on in investigations and. Um, as time went on, um, it was less of that and more of just a culture of not being interested in, in investigating that, that, that kind of crime. Uh, for, for many years, and we're seeing some changes now, especially after uh, in the post-colonial era, of course, um, FBI Director Chris Wray compared ransomware to the 9-11 terrorist attacks. And since, since that May 2021 attack, there's been a, a lot more focus. But now the FBI is behind the curve uh, because for years, um, the cyber division was treated as lesser than other, other divisions in the FBI. Uh, the FBI can be a very clicky place, and the cyber division agents were um, widely considered to be, as um, a former agent, uh, former agents told me, the geek squad in the sea of jocks. And when um, there was a point in 2015 where uh, a group of cyber agents with deep technical skills, and I'll say they are in the minority um, in the FBI, they, they brought their concerns about um, how the FBI was uh, disregarding or under underusing their skills to then director James Comey. And they warned of this brain drain of, of talent. And they mm described what the FBI could do um, to, to better address these problems. One of them is um, hire, hire more computer science um, experts and don't, you know, don't require them to adhere to the same standards that you require of other agents, the physical fitness requirements, um, uh, you know, ha handling a weapon or even engaging with the public. Uh, but so far, none of these recommendations have come to pass. Interesting. I did really that that line where you and Daniel write it still wanted its cyber agents to be athletic college graduates with relevant job experience who also had to be willing to shoot a gun and relocate their families. A very different type of agent than what we are hearing about with regard to who are members of the ransomware hunting team. Again, we're talking with Renee Dudley and Daniel Golden. Renee is technology reporter with ProPublica, and Daniel Golden is senior editor and reporter with ProPublica. And Daniel, one of the things that you talk about also is that some of the ways that the hunting team members are effective is in engaging directly with the hackers, like in the instance where, um, I believe it was Lawrence Abrams of Bleeping Computer, that site, <clears throat> basically asked hackers for a truce uh, on attacking hospitals during the pandemic, right? Can you tell us about that? Yes, this was Lawrence's initiative. He's the founder of Bleeping Computer, which we've mentioned, and also a co-founder of the Ransomware Hunting Team. And he's he's a journalist for the Bleeping Computer site, and he uh, has contacts with many of the ransomware <clears throat> gangs. 
and so uh, he reached out to them when the pandemic started and said, uh, would you please not attack uh, health care for the duration of the pandemic so that we can treat all the people who get sick? And uh, it, what ended up happening, though, was it, it may have made a marginal beneficial difference. A few gangs said they wouldn't attack health care, but it quickly became apparent that when they said that, first of all, they were limiting their attacks to uh, just to avoid direct patient care services. So they were still attacking hospital parking garages, um, places that, that supplied uh, you know, health care equipment, or in the case of University of California, San Francisco, they, they attacked the uh, epidemiology department there, which was right. doing a COVID research and had to pay a, uh, a seven-figure ransom. And then others uh, disregarded the truce, um, uh, just, and then others who uh, saw that there was an opening because some of their competitors weren't attacking hospitals, started attacking hospitals more than ever. So that it was, it was a very well-intentioned initiative, may have had a little help on the margins, but it, it kind of suggested that uh, Lawrence's view of the hackers, which is that, you know, they're, they're not demons or monsters, they're, they're people like us, just, you know, greedy criminals. Um, he might have put a little too much faith in their, uh, uh, in their, you know, trusting, trusting human nature. And uh, uh, it was a good, it was a good try, but uh, there were an awful lot of attacks on hospitals in the pandemic anyway, as we've already talked about. I mean, Renee, this way of dealing with cybercrime feels kind of amazing. Uh, at the same time, you know, this hunting team feels sort of fragile, like our best defense is a band of, of ethical uh, misfits, essentially, as you describe in the title of your book, uh, uh, a band of misfits, a probable crusade to save the world. I, I was just wondering how you think about that, right? Like you've got Lawrence sort of trying to appeal to the good graces of hackers, the, the humanity, if it's there, if at all, right? You've got this band of of people who uh, have have certain skills, um, but you don't have, as you were describing just before that, the FBI really putting in place the kinds of infrastructure that they need to, to be able to, to deal with ransomware attacks. Do you still feel like we are incredibly vulnerable as a society to all of this and the, that the hackers really have the upper hand? Oh, sure. And you made a good point earlier, which is, I mean, if, if, Michael Gillespie were to be hit by a bus tomorrow, we'd all be a lot worse off in the future. <laughs> there's so there's so few um, people with this incredibly um, deep expertise in cryptography, which is what ransomware is all about, um, who also have the public service element at heart um, it, it, because they don't charge for their services. Um, and, and because they spend so much time on it, it, it's just there's not many people in the world who 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 have all of those um, goals aligned. And one thing I'll say about the hunting team is they do bring new people into the fold on a regular basis. Uh, it, it's it's an interesting dynamic. It's an invitation only society. 
new members can be nominated by anyone on the team, and then they have to be unanimously approved. And they do bring on new people all the time, but you're exactly right that it's fragile. And they're filling this gaping void um, in American um, society. We talked about the FBI. There's the role of um, cybersecurity firms who, when you think about it, um, when ransomware proliferates and hackers make money, so do they, because the more ransomware there is, the more ransomware they have to respond to. And then there's the role of the insurance industry. Um, they're facing mm. a reckoning now, but for um, years, cyber policies were selling like hotcakes, um, still are, but insurers were very eager to pay ransoms because when, when um, presented with the options of paying a ransom, which even if it's a million dollars, you know, that could end up being significantly less than the cost of restoring from backups if they're, if, if, you know, the victim is lucky enough to have backups of their corrupted files. Um, because when you restore for backups at a huge company, that could take weeks or months and the insurance company may be on the hook for um, business interruption and lost revenues and things like that and when you put the two against each other paying paying a ransom may appear to be the more cost effective option but uh, you know as and we reported on this for ProPublica um, in 2019 and at that time there were concerns that this this was this this eagerness to pay the ransom ultimately is going to, to, to lead to skyrocketing ransom demands. And that's exactly what we see. Hmm. And now the um, insurance industry is pulling back and uh, it will see, we're seeing policies that um, specifically say, you know, ransoms will not be covered and rising premiums and all the rest. But all of these other segments, um, they, they, they indirectly profit from ransomware, which is why the team is so important and their public service do it for free mentality is what's been so effective. We'll have you know, more. As, uh, yeah, actually, Daniel, we're just about to go into a break. So hold that thought until afterward. We're talking with Daniel Golden and Renee Dudley of ProPublica. And with you, our listeners, we'll take your calls and comments after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. We're talking about a group of elite coders who are members of what's known as the Ransomware Hunting Team. And that's the title of the book by Renee Dudley and Daniel Golden of ProPublica, a band of misfits and probable crusade to save the world from cybercrime. You, our listeners, are joining the conversation at 866-733-6786 by emailing forum at kqed.org or posting them on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Jeff writes, it amazes me that after all these years, IT professionals leave their systems open to these attacks by not backing up their data. It's like being a repeated burglary victim, but never locking the front door. And Tony writes, I have heard backing up files is protection for ransomware. Is this true? Daniel, uh, do you want to respond to Tony? And also you had a thought before the break. Feel free to share as well. Let me backing give my up thought files. There. Yeah, go ahead. Then, then Renee can speak on backing up files. <laughs> she knows more than, about that than me. Um, as what I was going to say is, um, as she was kind of suggesting, there's a fascinating moral and policy dilemma that kind of overhangs ransomware and and that gets approached in various directions in our book, which is, you know, should you pay a ransom? And uh, you know, we explore it in all sorts of different directions. You know, there are some places like hospitals that simply uh, don't seem to have another choice in some cases. Uh, there's a lot of hypocrisy about it in a way. The FBI publicly says don't pay a ransom, but privately they recognize that you know circumstances might require it. And, we looked in, at, we reconstructed an attack on the city of Baltimore in uh, uh, 2019, uh, uh, where um, the city, the, the city's services were devastated, and they decided, the mayor decided, I'm not going to pay the ransom, which was 75 or 80 thousand dollars, something like that. And instead, you know, to, to to recover its systems, it ended up paying, you know, estimates range from 10 to 18 million dollars, and. Uh, it, some of the public supported the decision. Some didn't. The mayor lost for re-election. But uh, these are case studies. You know, they, it, it's great to be brave and it's, it's great not to pay criminals. But sometimes there's a cost associated with it. And what cost are we willing to bear? How should we act in these different situations is really a fascinating question. Yeah. Well, uh, really quickly, backing up files, is that a great strategy to try to mitigate ransomware? and having to pay it, ransoms. It is, it sure is. And especially if you're backing them up on a device that's not connected to the internet so that, I, I mean, so often we we hear um, news store in the news organizations who have been victimized from ransomware also have their backups corrupted. So that's why you really need to take care to ha have it on a device that's not connected to the internet. Um, but there is a twist, which is, um, a couple of years ago, ransomware hackers started to steal files before they encrypted them, um, effectively turning a ransomware attack into a data breach also. Mm -hmm. And the reason that they did this is for leverage in negotiations, um, because it, when when attackers hit ransomware victims, there's a back and forth over how much you're going to pay. Uh, and when the victim knows that the hackers may leak sensitive files on the dark web, they may be more inclined to pay. So although they, the victim may be able to completely recover from um, perfect backups and seamlessly restore their operations um, you know, within a matter of hours, they may still feel pressure to pay because otherwise their sensitive data could be out there for the taking. 
Let me go to Peggy in Montara. Hi, Peggy. Thanks for waiting. You're on. Oh, thank you. Um, I was. I have a Mac, and I'd been visiting some websites, and then a message came on my computer that looked just like a Mac message. That said, the website you just visited installed a virus. Please click, you know, here for a technician to help you remove it. I clicked, and it said, "Hi, this, you know, this is a Mac technician." He took over my computer, said that he found a virus and that everything was fine, and then wanted $385. I paid him with a credit card. And then about two hours later, a friend said, you've been hacked. So I turned off my computer, mm-hmm. called the computer guy. He came over the next day. He found five viruses and removed them. Um, so, but the problem was that for the next three years, it started out three phone calls a day, you know, for about six months. I got calls from, it could have been India. They were Indians. I got for three years. I got calls every day saying, our software is not working. Give me a credit card number for a refund. Visa did refund my money, but um, I had to do all kinds of things to my phone to keep having to answer them. Well, Peggy, I'm so sorry that happened to you. I'm curious, Renee, so what happened to Peggy? Does Does that meet the definition of a ransomware attack? Well, that's so terrible, Peggy. Sorry to hear that. How frustrating yeah. for you. It does not sound like ransomware. When when ransomware strikes, uh, you're not able to open any files at all. And usually, instead of the type of message that Peggy describes, there's usually a demand that pops up on Notepad or another application uh, demanding money in exchange for your files. And uh, oftentimes there will be a dark website where the victim has to go to open negotiations. There's a chat screen where the victim and the hacker write back and forth and agree upon a price. Uh, Sometimes they use uh, regular email addresses to go back and forth, but increasingly we're seeing these portals. Hmm. Well, Grace writes, I occasionally watch porn on my computer and phone. I've gotten two emails demanding $1,000, shaming me and threatening to expose me to my contact list. How do I protect myself and who do I report this to? Both times I ignored the threats and nothing happened, but it's an annoying violation. Do you have any thoughts for Grace, Renee? Who do you go to? Again, you doesn't... Yeah. Doesn't doesn't sound like ransomware, but similar it, 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 ransomware is introduced in similar ways: downloading material from untrustworthy sites, opening suspicious messages in your email. These are the things that you should avoid doing if you want to avoid being attacked by ransomware or any other types of cyber scams. Well, Minha writes, I used to see commercials for software that defends against ransomware. Do any of those work? If so, which ones? Renee? Well, you certainly want to keep your um, your your uh, computer up to date and patched because vulnerable software is one of the primary ways that that hackers get into your machine. So, you know, when it, there are those annoying little prompts that pop up on your computer, it's time to update your software. And so often, and myself included, we just hit defer because we've got a million tabs open and we're in the middle of the workday. You got to do it because those are the types of vulnerabilities that hackers use to get into your system. 
Well, well, Sue asks, how can we get more hackers to do work for the good? It's an interesting question because, uh, Daniel, I, I mean, I, I imagine that there would have been some recruitment even by the hackers of hunting team members <laughs> to try to get them on their side because they're such good coders. Well, there's recruitment both ways, actually. Uh, in our book, we tell stories both of uh, uh, the hackers trying to tempt the uh, hunting team with, you know, promising you'll make much more money in a, in a day or a week <laughs> of, uh, you know, of attacks than you will in a, in a lifetime of defense. But at the same time, uh, one of the hunting team members, Daniel Gallagher, had success in uh, flipping a uh, teenage uh, uh, ransomware attacker into uh, uh, doing what the team does, cracking ransomware and uh, and helping victims. I mean, I think that there, you know, some of these hackers are can be young and uh, impressionable, and they may they may not have you know settled into a life as career criminals or whatever. They may be just have you know bought a, a ransomware kit on the web and they're trying it out, and. Uh, uh, you know, in some cases, they can be persuaded to switch sides. So sometimes it, it can just be an appeal to their conscience. Uh, but, uh, you know, other times if somebody has, you know, been for several years making millions of dollars in ransomware and they're living it, you know, living it up in, in uh, you know, Russia and uh, expensive cars and mansions and so on, I don't think they're going to be brought over to work with the hunting team. So, uh, it kind of depends, but there there is some hope with maybe some of the younger, more impressionable, and less uh, committed uh, ransomware attackers. And I'll well, just yeah, to, Renee, go ahead to underscore a, a point that you hinted at. The, one of the fascinating dynamics here is that the hunters and the hackers have the same skills. They are experts in cryptography, um, in knowing about vulnerabilities. Um, the evidence suggests they, they even have similar personalities. They're interested in video games. They have the same movie interests. Michael's favorite, Michael Gillespie's favorite movie is The Lion King, and there was a ransomware called Takuna Matata Ransomware. And it's Dan and I talk about how fascinating it is that that they that they they have the same skills. One side using it for good, and the other side is using it for evil. And some of the team members in their darker moments joke about how um, you know a lot of that you know a lot of the team members are are struggling to make ends meet um, in part because of all their dedication to their work. And in in darker moments, they've joked about how they could clear a couple hundred thousand in a weekend if they just use their expertise the way the hackers do. Right, right. Well, let me go to Alan in Newark. Hi, Alan, you're on. Hello. Go right Hello, ahead. can you hear me? I can, you're on. Yeah, um, so I think people suggest um, stop cryptocurrency. So cryptocurrency is the medium for drug dealing, for North Korea to get its money, for um, ransomware. No cryptocurrency means no ransomware. That means the hospitals are safer. That means our electricity is safer. Everything's safer. If someone wants to uh, uh, hack uh, ransomware me, I'll pay you with a check. <laughs> <laughs> you have no cryptocurrency. You've got no, no, no ransomware. 
other <laughs> thing is, um, I just wanted to thank the ransomware hacking team. Uh, no one's surprised ever thanked them, so I just wanted to thank them. Oh, well, Alan, thanks for that comment. And let me remind listeners, you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Uh, so no cryptocurrency, no ransomware. But how realistic is no cryptocurrency, Renee? Well, you know, in the early days of ransomware, uh, they they asked for payment in uh, prepaid gift cards. And, you know, how far we've come. And I mean, in a sense, the caller is right. You know, ransomware really took off with the advent of Bitcoin right. because uh, it's difficult to, to trace and um, hackers felt more protected and th there was, uh, you know, it was difficult to follow the money. Uh, but it, it's hard to put the toothpaste back in the tube. Um, and we're even seeing uh, hackers using even less traceable forms of cryptocurrency, um, uh, the likes of Monero. And uh, it, 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 it's hard to see the hackers backing off of it when it's such a proven business model. Alan was also saying- very, uh, Yeah, sorry, go ahead, Daniel. Just say, you know, hackers are very adaptable, you know, so that, um, uh, you know, in cases where they be, they use a particular type of email for negotiations or demands, when those uh, email providers have tried to crack down on criminals or ransomware gangs on that service, they 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 find another email service to switch to. So it's a bit of a whack-a-mole problem to try and keep them out of cryptocurrency or out of uh, you know particular email uh, services. Well, Alan, the caller wanted to thank the hunting team. Merrily writes, how do these team members survive financially? Do they need more support, more resources? Renee? Yeah, you know, a number of them, most of them have day jobs. They work in the cybersecurity field, antivirus. Um, and so they, 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 some of them are on better footing now than they were a few years ago, but some of them still struggle to make ends meet. Uh, recently, there's a, a particularly reclusive member of the team. Nobody knows his real name, but he goes online by uh, the Twitter handle Malware Hunter Team, and he lives in Hungary. And nobody knows his real identity, but the the team members know that that he's he really struggles, and they set up a GoFundMe page for him. Mm -hmm. um, here and there, when when a team member is struggling um, in a particular bind, somebody else on the team always steps in uh, with a job offer or or, or a donation. Um, they send money to each other. And uh, you know, Fabian Wosar, one of the characters in the book, uh, a German who's now living um, in the London area, he he stepped in um, uh, offering his teammates uh, part-time work at his company uh, j just to help them pay their bills. Yeah. Well, and what if I about, could just add, uh, yeah. you know, as Renee said earlier, the world would be worse off if, if Michael Gillespie was hit by a bus. But, you know, it's they're not just facing kind of the same random risks as the rest of us. They're work working at considerable uh, personal risk because they're they're thwarting uh, criminals, uh, sometimes major criminal organizations associated with, uh, uh, you know, unsavory governments. And uh, <coughs> as a result, you know, the, you can't discount the possibility of some kind of retaliation against them. Many of them have to use aliases because uh, uh, there are real risks and dangers associated with being the one group of private citizens in the world uh, defending us against ransomware. Sure. Well, 
are there weak spots for the cyber criminals? If arrest, imprisonment is impossible, what do you think is an effective form of deterrence? Uh, is there one, Daniel? It's a good, good, que good question. I mean, you know, to some degree, uh, parts of their system might be more vulnerable than others. I mean, there have been some successful efforts to take down their, their servers, for example. Uh, you know, so there are aspects of their cyber operation that are more exposed than others, and that's one way to attack them. And then even though they're not in countries sometimes where they can be extradited from, there have been some arrests where, you know, a hacker decided to take a vacation somewhere in Europe where we do have an extradition agreement. And, you know, through our agreements with uh, law enforcement in other countries, they're able to arrest the hacker and send them to the U.S. For, for trial. So there have been occasional successes there where they where they misstep. Well, Bob writes, what should a person immediately do when they're attacked by ransomware? Is it contact the FBI, Renee? Is it go to bleeping computer? <laughs> what yes, do you say? But, but those are two things that, that come to the foremost of my mind. So Michael Gillespie has a website called ID Ransomware that he launched in 2016. And victims can upload files to, to ID Ransomware to figure out what they've been hit by and whether they can get a free decryption tool um, uh, that the members of the team or other private researchers have developed. And if they can, good for them. They can recover quickly without um, having to pay hackers. Um, you mentioned the FBI. So, so uh, often in the past, victims of ransomware have been reluctant to contact the FBI in the aftermath of the attack, thinking there's nothing that they can do to help me. I don't want to deal with negative publicity if this somehow leaks out. And the count, the ransomware attack um, figures have just been so drastically understated. Increasingly, their victims are seeing a benefit to contacting the FBI because the FBI is increasingly, again, in the post-colonial attack era, working with private researchers, including members of the ransomware hunting team. Mm -hmm. And there's been a number of examples of victims getting free tools that aren't public, um, through the FBI in cooperation with the hunting team. Renee Dudley, Daniel Golden of ProPublica. Their book is The Ransomware Hunting Team, A Band of Misfits and Probable Crusade to Save the World from Cybercrime. Thank you both. And also my thanks to Susie Britton for producing today's segment and to the entire forum team for their work and to our listeners for their questions and comments and stories. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Have a good weekend. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising-Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.